So as you heard briefly uh, during announcements, we are nearing kind of the end of the semester. In fact, after tonight, there are only five more large groups left of the school year, which may seem crazy, and you may get excited, but remember, in five weeks, it's finals week. So um, don't get too excited. So I just want, I, I want to craft our, or give a picture of where we're headed in the remaining five meetings we have left together. Um, the next two times we meet, we are going to finish Colossians. I went and I listened to one of the sermons Stephen preached while I was gone, and in it he was making fun of me, saying we weren't going to finish Colossians. But Stephen will eat his crow, and we will finish this book. Um, and so we're going to finish Colossians, and then in the last three large groups together, we're going to be working through some stuff here, um, kind of like workshop style to prepare for next fall. Uh, a lot of what it is that we're going to do, uh, those of you who were with us last year, we did this last year too, is we're going to kind of grab what we talked about at retreat, where retreat we talked about discipleship and what it looks like to help other people follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel. And we want to say, what does that look like for us as college students? What does that look like for us as a campus group? What does that look like for us as um, part of a local church? Um, and so we're going to look at what discipleship is, how we can do it better, what tools can we have for you guys. So next year when there are new students who come in, or even if you look to the person next to you, and you say, hey, I want to read the Bible with this person. You're not just flying blind and overwhelmed um, with what it is that's going on, but you know uh, a little bit of what to expect. And then we're going to take one of them talk about our time. How many of you feel like there's not enough time in your life for everything? Yes. The cool thing is that God is the God who determined the exact amount of time we have in our life. And so God cares about our time. And so what we're going to do, um, as we're talking about discipleship and as we're talking about uh, and you're thinking about applying for leadership at GCF or maybe internships or now you've got work and school and an internship and maybe GCF leadership or some travels you want to do, you feel like, I can't get anything done. There's not enough time. We want people at GCF to be distinct in terms of how they uh, live life. We want you to pursue your studies to the glory of God, to the best of your ability, and we want you to help other people uh, pursue the gospel to the best of their ability. And we know and we want you to be able to do all of that without losing your mind. Um, and the cool thing is, is God only holds you responsible for your time. You can't create more time. God's given you this. And so we want to learn how to steward our time well. And hopefully that will be a relief to you guys um, as we sit down and do some workshops on that. And then the last meeting of the semester is really fun. Those of you who were here last year, um, we come in here, we have a dinner in here, and we get on the whiteboard and we actually chart out uh, what we want to do for like the first two weeks of the semester next year in terms of how is it we want to have new events, to um, meet new freshmen. If you're a freshman here, there's something that we did probably in those first two weeks um, that you saw. And so we want to say, how can we get people who are cooler than you next year um, to come in and replace you? Uh, and so we want to think through that. We also want to give you guys ownership. And so we want to have, have the ability to be like, hey, uh, you want to host a magic tournament, Chase? You can do that. Here's what you need to do to pull that off. Um, Chase is just getting, like, whipped on tonight. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So that's what's, uh, what our next five weeks are going to look like. But today we're going to take a break from Colossians because uh, two reasons. One, next week is spring break, so you are all, except for Chase, um, going to be off, off and away. Um, but this is the second year in a row now where... For the university, spring break overlaps uh, with Easter, or what is often called Passion Week uh, in the Christian church. And this week is really the center of the Christian faith, and it includes primarily three events, which I don't know if you're familiar with or not. And those three events are um, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter, or Resurrection Sunday. In one sense, we're really sad that we don't get to celebrate that with you. Um, working at a church, I love Easter, I love the celebration it brings. I love the opportunity that uh, we have to share the gospel with new people in our community. But in another way, we're really glad that you guys are leaving. We're really glad that you are going back to your home, that you're going on uh, a spring break trip, that you're taking a vacation, and you're going back to places to where either you get to go to church with your family, or you get to be in a place with people who may or may not know the gospel, and you get to set a pattern of what it looks like to be a Christ follower in your life. Um, see, I grew up in church. I've been a Christian uh, the majority of my life. Uh, but it wasn't until college where I really saw the beauty and the significance of Easter. I love it now. It's really one of my favorite holidays. Like last year, because my kids have started 
uh, being able to watch movies and like tracking themes. I woke up really early and found some ripped off version of Narnia and fast forward to the resurrection scene before church. And I wanted my kids to get the significance of this resurrection. That there was that there's a Jesus who died for our sins and came back to life. And so I just love what Easter is and the significance of it. But it wasn't always that way. My family always celebrated, we always made a big deal of it. Again, we were always involved in church. But what happened is once just I got to college and I became more mature, what happened was in college I began to see the gospel more clearly. And when I began to see what Jesus actually did and why he did it and what it means for me. Easter became so much more than a nice family holiday where we go to church together and we just love this togetherness it brings. But it began to really stir my soul in a way that was profound. And here's what I know, is if you've been involved with GCF, so here we are kind of three quarters way through the year, if you've been involved with GCF for any significant period of time, um, you probably know, but you have at least heard a more clear proclamation of the gospel than I heard or understand when I was in college. And I know that Rachel and Stephen would probably say the same thing when they were at that age. And so I say that because here you are, having spent um, uh, a significant amount of time away from your family, uh, perhaps coming to GCF or doing discipleship with one of your peers or one of the student leaders or going to a church, and you've had this time to grow, to look at the gospel, to see it perhaps for the first time or maybe more clearly. And so you have this opportunity to go home or wherever you are and Easter might be a completely different experience than before. Because you see a more clear picture of who Jesus was and what that means for you. And for others, this might be completely unique because this might be your first ever Easter as a Christian. Seeing this good news of Jesus Christ, not more clearly, but for the first time. You may be going back to a place where you don't have church. Or your family has gone to this church that doesn't preach the gospel just because they go to church, but they don't really follow Jesus or claim to be a Christian. They just go to church because that's what they do. Or maybe you're on vacation with people who otherwise won't go to church. And so what we want to do is two things tonight. First, we want to prepare you for your experience of Easter. And then second, we want to prepare you to explain Easter to your family, to your friends, or to those um, you're re-entering life with um, over this week. We want you to be able to explain why is it that here I am, I always went uh, and did crazy camping trips over my spring break. Why is it that on my spring break, which I didn't, that I, I don't think it was over Easter, so I get an excuse, you don't. Um, why is it that on your spring break, this is such a big deal where it's worth you going to church for three of those precious seven days? And can you explain that? Because the value of the gospel isn't in attendance. The value of the gospel is in what the gospel means to us, and why it demands our attention. And so what we're going to do tonight is we want to help you experience Easter. We want to help you explain Easter to those around you, because God is uh, going to give you those opportunities this, uh, this coming week. So let's pray real quick, then we'll dive in. Lord, I pray for our time tonight. I thank you for all these students that you've brought here. I thank you that they are willing to, whether they know it or not, they've prioritized this. And there's value in that. And in small ways, they are beginning to offer their time as a sacrifice to you because you are worthy. Because maybe they see you as worthy or maybe you're calling them to yourself um, to warm their hearts to the gospel. By the way, Lord, we're grateful for this. We pray that your word is made beautiful tonight. We pray that over break, there are countless opportunities for the gospel to be shared and lives to be transformed because of the, the men and women in this room. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for the story we're about to look at. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this Passion Week, this kind of last week of Jesus, and we're going to look at it by looking at these three significant kind of church events that we have. And so the first one is this Sunday. Um, this Sunday, not this Saturday, is Palm Sunday. Uh, and here's why Palm Sunday is significant. Is Palm Sunday shows us that Christ is our King. Palm Sunday reminds us of Christ our king. And so if you turn with me to, or look at, I'm going to be jumping around a lot today, so you don't have to turn with me, but uh, Luke 9 will be up on the screen, verses 28 through 39. And when he, that's Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, 
he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where entering will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here we see Jesus entering Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, uh, this Palm Sunday, where in other uh, gospel accounts we see people also putting palm fronds on the ground, which is why it's called Palm Sunday. And this is important because when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he ruled them perfectly and wonderfully. And there was no harm to be found. They lived under God's good and immediate rule. But when sin came, Adam and Eve rejected God's perfect rule and tried instead to be their own authority. They tried to determine who it was who was king, and that king was them. And after the fall, our biggest problem, which you guys nailed this question last week when Stephen asked this, I'll do it again and see if I get the same answer. What's our biggest problem? That's awesome. Uh, our biggest problem being separation from God, that's, that's what it is. Your biggest problem, if you nail the exam, our biggest problem as humans, we've talked about this in worldview class too, is our separation from God. And in order to try to solve that problem, we as humans have tried to find that salvation in anything and everything. There is something missing in our lives. There's something wrong. And so we search and we dig and we look under and we examine, hoping to find whatever that source is. Right? We look to political figures to save us, for relationships to complete us for sports to validate us, or careers to provide for us. But the narrative of Scripture is that only God can save us. And the beautiful thing is that even though it was us who sinned against God, it was God who pursued us. It was God who made a covenant saying, I will again save you, and I will rule you as your king. And look at what God says to King David. So, King David was the strongest king of Israel, the most popular one, the one who had the greatest rule. And this is what God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled, and when you lay down with your father, so when David dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so... David, uh, God gives David this promise, and so they hear this son, and they think it's Solomon, who's David's next son that they have, and Solomon gets all this wisdom given to him from God, but Solomon falls away. Solomon is not a good king for the majority of his kingdom. But the cool thing is, is if you look at the book of Matthew, it starts with the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus is a, a man from David's lineage. He is the new great king. He is the son that God was promising in 2 Samuel 7, the son who will rule forever on his throne. And what we read in this triumphal entry is Jesus' ministry was primarily in the north of Judea, but now he's turned south and is going towards Jerusalem. He has turned his face towards the city of kings, the throne city of the nation of Israel, and he is making his triumphal entrance of the king that God has long promised God's forever king had finally come to take his seat 
at this throne of the kingdom. And we see two implications in Palm Sunday of Jesus entering Jerusalem. The first, and these are things that are helpful as you go to Palm Sunday services, and hopefully you do and you hear this proclaimed. The first implication is, is that if Jesus is king, he has a rightful claim over all things. Right? We see in this story the story of a donkey. And perhaps you're like, why is this even important? And why would a king ride on a donkey? And there's a prophecy that's fulfilled in that, but in one sense, it's silly that Jesus would do that. But Jesus did it to specifically show something. He tells his disciples, hey, go into town, and then you'll find a colt. Not just a colt, a colt that no one has rode on. And when you get it, steal it. Untie it and bring it to me. And they're probably like, well, what if, like, illegal? What if, what if this is bad? Uh, and just like, just say to them, the Lord has needed it, and they'll let you go. It's not stealing it, they'll let you have it. That's it. It's, they're going to let you have it. And so they go, and they're like, I feel like this is, this is wrong. What's going on? They untie the donkey, and the people come out, and they're like, the Lord has needed it. And then we don't hear anything else. They take the donkey. It's like, all right, sweet, as you were. And they just go back inside, and they bring the donkey to Jesus. But this is significant. Because Jesus isn't just an ordinary person going to an ordinary town calling a random animal to himself. Jesus not only knew what was going to happen, but Jesus had control over what would happen. Because Jesus is a king who has authority over everything. We saw this in Colossians 1 earlier this year, verses uh, 15 through 16. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says this, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, colts or donkeys, all things were created through him and for him. See, if all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, then Jesus is the rightful owner, the rightful heir, the rightful authority over all things. There is nothing, not in this world, not in your heart, not in your life, which Jesus is not Lord over, which is not due to the King who reigns over all things. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, we talked about this earlier in the year two in Colossians, he's not an ordinary king. You see, when there were kings like David and Solomon, they're what we call representative kings. They're fully human, and God says, you're going to be my king, I'm going to put you on a throne, and rule my people like I'm telling you to rule my people. I want you to be my representative, my proxy king over these people. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, Jesus is God the king himself. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, the king had come home to claim what was always and forever his. And if Jesus is the king, and this is kind of a distant concept to us who don't have a king, you go ask people in Britain, and maybe they'll have more knowledge on this. Um, but because he's a king, that means that whether you choose to acknowledge him as your king or not, if you live in his kingdom, he has a right over all of your life. You don't get to argue over who is king if you live in and if we live on this world, we are in God's kingdom. Which means all we have, all we think, all we do, all we are is his. And to not see this isn't disagreement. To not see this is the root of sin. Sin is nothing more than violating the kingship of God in our thoughts, in our words, or in our actions. If everything we are is made by and for Jesus, then every act of loyalty ascribed to someone else is the highest treason. It is choosing to worship and be ruled by someone else. But on the flip side of that, to see Jesus as the rightful king in your life is to give him the proper allegiance. And Palm Sunday shows us that Jesus is the rightful ruler um, who's came, come to call men to himself. And the second implication of this is that if Jesus is our true king, then our lives should be ruled by him. Meaning we should seek to be ruled by Jesus. Look again at what happens in uh, Luke 19, 34 through 38. 
And just listen to how this, this activity is building around Jesus. And they said the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, so not just the twelve, but these large crowds, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And I love this text because, no, Jesus doesn't tell anyone to do anything about him coming in. He, they didn't have this party where they planned, like, this is, it's not like uh, LeBron James' decision to go to Miami where he called this subtle party in a, bo- in a uh, boys and girls club and had the media there, and this is how I'm going to make my entrance. He's like, we're going to go into Jerusalem. And guys are like, well, can I, can I, let's put some coats on the donkey, and then let me, I'll put you on it. But here, I'll put my coats on the road, and then, like, more people are coming, and they're like, well, he took off his coat, so... I'm actually getting hot. This is not why I'm doing this. (laughs) They take off their coat and they're like, you you walk on that. And then people get palm palms like, you should probably walk on this too. And then people just start praising and worshiping God and giving glory to God in the highest for all the things that Jesus had done. You see, they wanted to welcome this king. It was addictive. The crowds were consumed with worshiping this Jesus who was coming in. No one had to tell them what was going on. There was a natural excitement which grew around it. The irony of this is that most of these disciples would fall away and scatter as Jesus entered the sea. Some of them would be scared when Jesus was arrested. They would flee, and others would be embarrassed when he was executed. And they would walk away. You see, these people didn't fully understand who Jesus was. But they knew they wanted something that he could offer. They knew they wanted what it was he brought. And we see this all the time in our lives. People know they need salvation. They know they need something to fix something. And so they look for it. The problem is they don't know where to look for. And the reason we look is, uh, the reason we look for salvation, the reason we look for a good ruler, the reason we have these lofty fairy tale desires is because we were made to be ruled by a good savior. We were made to be loved by a good king. So our hearts accurately want what Jesus brings, but our sin causes us to deny the experience Christ offers. See, it's right that we want but we do not want the right things. It's right that we want what Jesus offers. We want the idea of salvation that we see hidden behind Jesus, the hope that he offers. But the problem is is we don't want Jesus in the right way. We don't see him for who he truly is. So I just had a birthday. This didn't happen on my birthday. Uh, But it's happened before where you get a present for Christmas or for your birthday and you see the shape of the box and you begin to project what you think is in there, right? But what happens if you overproject? Disappointed. You see, it's all too common for us to project what we think is our greatest need on Jesus. When it's Jesus who defines what our greatest need actually is. We want someone like Jesus, but for God to, or for Jesus to solve our God problem, that's our greatest problem. We must see him as the solution that God intended Jesus to be. And if we want to know why Jesus matters, we have to put aside our own projections of what we think a Savior ought to be or look like or what we think it is he needs to provide us. And instead, we need to let Jesus be defined by his own kingdom, which was shown on his march to the cross. This is the second event we're going to look at tonight. This is Good Friday. Good Friday we pause at the idea that Christ is our death. Good Friday, we see Christ our king. Or on Palm Sunday, Christ is our king. On Good Friday, Christ is our death. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read a large chunk of text from the Gospel of Mark. And I'm intentionally not going to put it on the screen um, because I want you guys to just hear it. I want you to hear this story. Um, a lot of times, as soon as someone picks up a Bible, we like zone out like it's a professor with a textbook. 
when we hear the story of what's going on. So I, if you need to close your eyes while you hear this, then, then do that. Um, don't take notes. Don't try to follow along in your Bible. Um, but just listen to the story of Jesus' crucifixion in Mark uh, chapter 15, where we just see um, uh, Jesus being brought before Pilate, who's the Roman governor at the time. It says this, Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for the Jews one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall we do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, having whipped Jesus and delivered him over to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on his head. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a rod, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in false homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they even compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the school. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by mocked him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, yet he cannot even save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Wait! Let's see whether Elijah will come down and take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw him in this way, he breathed his last. And the centurion said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So, going to a Good Friday experience is unique because it's called good, and it remembers a tragedy. In Schindler's List, if you've seen it, um, Spielberg portrays the movie in black and white with the exception of one young girl in a red dress. And he did this as a portrayal of innocence. Amidst the darkness of the Nazi regime, there is one small glimpse of innocence. But the turning point in the movie is when Schindler sees a cart full of dead bodies rolling by with the girl in the red dress on it. He meant it to be a portrayal of the violation and desecration 
by the Nazi party on all things lovely and innocent. See, having three kids myself, this seems really moving for me. To imagine someone forcibly, due to ethnicity, taking the life of my children. Yet that child and my own children are not innocent. They share the same sinful heart I do. They, like I did when I was that age, rejected Jesus as the king in their life. They're helpless, and God will pay vengeance on those who war against the helpless. But they were not innocent. But Jesus, Jesus was innocent. Jesus was the only spot of color in a world otherwise stained black with sin. And on Good Friday, your sin murdered the only innocent man. Why? Good Friday shows us that Jesus had to die because you had to die. Sin blinds our hearts from seeing God as our king, and the result of that treason is death. And we have worked hard for that sentence to be perfectly just and right. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of our sin is death. The salary of your sin is death. And since the day of your birth, you have punched that time card daily, justifying that condemnation, which one day you are due. But when Jesus came, he came as a substitute. He came with pockets full to those who were in poverty. The author of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the truth is that if we must understand and worship Easter rightly, we must understand that my life, that your life demanded death. Each and every human to have ever lived, no matter how saintly or sinister, owes a debt of death for even a moment of rejecting God's beauty. And you will die eternal damnation for the weight of your sins. Or Jesus will die in your place. Jesus will take the cross in your stead. Death is going to happen to you. But Good Friday is where a substitute made forgiveness possible so that Jesus would die so that we would not have to. And this is where we, especially in the American church, in the Western Christianity, need to be very careful about how we understand and talk about Jesus' death. But Jesus' death shows us the love of God. But Jesus' death is not a sign of God's love for us. Our problem wasn't that we didn't believe God, and so he sent Jesus as a proof. It's not that we didn't have a right example to follow, and so he sent Jesus, and now we see how committed we ought to be. It's not just proof that God loved us, like uh, in a chick flick, a romantic movie where the protagonist is asked by his beloved to prove his love, and so he pulled off the most costly display of affection so as to show it. Jesus didn't die simply to show us how much God loved us, or even to prove how much God loved us. It was the death of Jesus that was the love of God itself. There is no other way in which a broken people can be brought back to God apart from that death being paid in Jesus Christ. It's not a romantic sign to be memorialized. It's the divine substance of love itself. If God would not provide relief from our sins by condemning Christ, then there would be no love. But Good Friday provides you the opportunity to attend your own funeral. To hear the cross, to gaze at the gospel, and see that his pain was your pain. His suffering was your suffering. His death was what you labored for, and he took it. Enduring not only the physical weight, but the spiritual rejection of God himself, which led the eternal Son of God to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken Look at Romans 4, 
verse 23 through 5-2. Paul says this. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. If, that's Jesus, will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, then, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, if we want to see Easter well, we go to church on Good Friday knowing that Jesus is not a mere imitation or a proof, but we see Jesus as the substitutionary death that we need, and we believe that in faith. The only way that Jesus' death applies to you is not through you earning the merit or you applying for it like you apply for a scholarship, but it's seeing that that was what I deserved. And he took it for you. If you do not believe this to be the case, you have no right to that substitution. You have no right to that peace. You have no claim to that Jesus. But if you see Jesus as meeting your need, he bears your name on that tree. So do you believe have you felt the weight of that sin? So that it could be borne by the outstretched arms of your Savior on the tree. If Christ died as only a sign of God's love, he's nothing more than an example to live by in a world full of great examples. But if Jesus died for our sins, then he is the Savior King, worthy of all things, not as a tax, but as an act of joyful devotion. On Good Friday, we grieve the cost of our redemption. But we rejoice in the shadow of Sunday's garden tomb. Let's read about the events which happened three days later on Resurrection Sunday. This is Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Sup, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see, the reason why Good Friday is good is because Good Friday is not the end. Good Friday finds its culmination in Resurrection Sunday, where we see Christ, our life. We see the tables turned, what C.S. Lewis calls the deeper magic, comes to play on Sunday, where Christ is made alive. You see, when God's king comes to pay the ransom for a sinful people, he doesn't simply change our calendar. He changes the whole of our lives. Look back at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through 11. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, there's Good Friday, united in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that his resurrected body is proof that we too will one day be resurrected physically. That Christianity isn't a spiritual religion with no bodily significance, but God cares. The king cares about the whole of our body. The king cares about our physical world, and one day he will recreate and renew all of us to live forever in God's kingdom. But also means that right now, your life spent this side of the grave is spent lived through, under, and in the name of Jesus Christ. You have no life outside of the life Christ gives. For outside of the life of Christ is the death of sin. I think this is best illustrated in the book that all of you were supposed to read in high school, but no one did, The Tale of Two Cities. How many of you read that, actually? Sweet. So this is great. This is going to be spark notes for you. You can pass your literature exams. Um, in the book, there are two main characters who look stunningly alike. This is portrayed um, in France, and they're both, they're, they're, they look really similar, they look identical, but they're both wildly different. The first is Charles Darnay, who is the heir to an aristocratic fortune, and the other is Sidney Carton, who is a, a mere servant class, uh, self-loathing citizen. Not a great guy. And both Darnay, the affluent wealthy man, and Carton, the self-loathing servant, love a beautiful young woman named Lucy. And you can imagine for Lucy, when two guys who look the same approach you, it'd be tough to choose. But if one of them is affluent, has a clear head on his shoulder, and has a, a good standing in society, it makes a decision, Elizabeth. So ultimately she chose Darnay as Sydney. Uh, wrestled with his inner demons still. And with Darnay, Lucy uh, has a daughter. And this story takes place during the French Revolution. And if you know anything about the French Revolution, it's when the pauper servant class rebels against those who are wealthy and in power. And so Darnay, being the heir to an aristocratic, aristocratic fortune, is condemned to die in the guillotine. He's taken captive and held in prison. But unbeknownst to Lucy and to Darnay, Sidney has seen how he's lived his life for nothing more than himself. And so even though he wasn't allowed to marry Lucy, he's vowed to give his life for Lucy's happiness. So in the middle of the night, Carton sneaks into the French prison to drugs Darnay. And brings his friend with him. And his friend watches as Carton begins to undress Darnay. And he takes Darnay's clothes and puts them on himself. He takes his clothes and he puts them on Darnay. And there's this beautiful line where his friend says, Carton, what are you doing? And Carton says, who's Carton? I'm Charles Darnay. And what happened was he went. Because they looked the same, he exchanged places with Darnay so that he in Darnay's clothes, in the vestiges of the aristocracy, would be sent to the guillotine to die as a substitute. And Darnay, now in Carton's clothes, will be free to live and love Lucy and his daughter for the rest of his life. And the book ends with Carton dressed in Darnay's clothes, marching to the guillotine, looking out over the crowd, and imagining what will be after his death. And this is what he saw. He said, I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy in that England which I shall see no more. I see her, that's Lucy, with a child upon her bosom who bears my name. I see that hold a sanctuary in their hearts and the hearts of their descendants generations hence. I see her, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her husband, their coarse dog, lying side by side in their last earthly bed, and I know that each was not more honored and held sacred in the other's souls. 
than I was in the souls of both. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and who bore my name, a man winning his way up in the path of life which was once mine. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. I see him foremost of the judges and honored men, bringing a boy of my name with a forehead that I know and golden hair to this place, then fair to look upon it with not a trace of this day's disfigurement. And I hear him tell the child my story with a tender and faltering voice. It's a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. It's a far, far better rest that I go to than I've ever known. And what makes this story so beautiful is not simply that Carton gave up his life so that Darnay would escape death. If all that happened was that Carton died for Darnay, soon the guards and the authorities would figure it out and they would again pursue Darnay. But what makes it beautiful is it was an identity exchange. Darnay, the criminal, became Sidney Carton. And that's the name that brought him life. Were he to step outside of that name? Were he to think his past life was what was best? He was to be a dead man walking. Carton suffered death so that Darnay could have a life which otherwise would have been impossible for him to live. If Darnay were to stay Charles Darnay, he would die a prisoner, but since he was given the opportunity to live as Sidney, he had an opportunity of life and life to the fullest. This is what Paul means in Romans 6, 10 through 11 again. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive Jesus Christ. You see, when covered in Darnay's clothes, Carton was executed at the guillotine. The death that stood over Carton, or Darnay, was removed. It was paid. And now he lived under the name of another. Because he chose to see his new life as the substance of his Savior, why would he step out of that name? Why would he go back when he only had life before him? You, if you are saved by Jesus Christ, have been given a much better name than the gospel of Jesus. A life not defined by a fictional story, meant to end when the reader finishes or to fade as the body dies, but a life eternal and everlasting through the Savior who took your place on the guillotine of God's wrath. In Jesus, you have more than a potential a new life. You have the promise of it. You have the assurance of the great things God has called you to do, and he has equipped you to do it because you have the life of Christ. Easter means that you're not only forgiven, but you are reborn. And to miss the beauty of this is to miss the wonder and the effect of your salvation. Easter isn't a life renovated. It's a new name given to us. It's a new life applied to us. It is salvation graciously given to us on the shoulders of our crucified and risen Savior. Easter's the story of the King who came to restore us to God by dying our death so that we might gain his life. Praise God for Easter. Praise God for the heavy truth of the gospel. Praise God for the burning in our lungs that we see as we look at our own sin, but the breath of fresh air that Jesus provides us. And so I pray for you this Easter that you encounter the mighty gospel in your churches. I pray that with your families and your friends, you worship together as the church of God with clarity, Jesus who has saved us. But I ask that if you've never gone to a church for Easter, if you have friends who are not going to do that, that you attempt to do it. You show the value of the gospel by living under the name of Jesus. And you don't just do it, but you share it with them. And you invite them to it. If you're going back to a place where you know your parents are perhaps part of 
uh, an unhealthy church, a church that doesn't preach the gospel, or if you don't have a church, um, please talk to Stephen, myself, or Rachel. We've got connections all around that we'd love to help you find a church at. Um, I want you guys to pursue that, because why wouldn't we if Christ is our life? Easter is the center of God's plan for this world, so it ought to be the center of affection in the heart of the believer. Let's pray. Let's worship. Lord, Revelation 5, there's a scroll that no one can open, the scroll that holds the words of life, and everyone is weeping because of it. Who would open the scroll, says all the elders. But then the Lamb of God appears. The sacrificial Lamb given for the sake of the church, and he opens the scroll, and we say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and praise forever. Worthy are you, Lord. Because you loved us on the cross. Not by showing it, not by modeling it, but by being love on the cross, by loving enemies. You rode into the, 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 the kingdom not to take the throne, but to take the cross, not to slay those who stood opposed to you, but to lay down your life for them. So I pray that that act grants us the faith to see your beauty so that we might be saved and have life and life abundantly. Lord, loose our tongues and our actions while we go to prioritize your gospel, if not for our own sake, for the sake of others. Jesus, you are a good God. It is a joy to worship you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. We praise you, Lord.